Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of interviewing Jane Duncan Rogers. Ms. Rogers is an award-winning life and death coach who helps people prepare well for a good end of life. Most of us look at death and fear it. Most of us think that it's the final chapter of our book. I'm excited to have Ms. Rogers on today. She has a, a broad background in the field of psychotherapy and personal growth for 25 years and is the founder of Before I Go Solutions, which is dedicated to educating people about dying and grief. Jane lives within the Findhorn community in Scotland in the United Kingdom. And what I'm really excited about this evening is having Miss Austin on to share with our audience what they can expect for a good end-of-life plan and steps that they can take now to uh, be prepared for their loved ones in their passing and to do so in a compassionate way that's respectful for all. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Miss Rogers to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I uh, Before we got on today, I was just saying how impressed. I, I'm really excited about having you as a guest for us and giving us the opportunity of exploring this particular topic because a lot of people, as soon as you say the word dying, end of life, or death, they fear it a lot. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, in terms of your own personal experiences with this particular area, how have you helped people overcome the stigma of dealing with end-of-life decisions and helping them understand more about it and not be fearful of it? Well, I think it primarily comes from my own story, and that is that um, seven years ago, my husband died, and the previous year, he had been diagnosed with um, stomach cancer. Now, up till that point, you know, we had not um, encountered anything really like that um, in our lives. Of course, we'd had the normal ups and downs that everybody has, but but, you know, this life threatening disease came into our lives and it shook us up. It really shook us up because nothing, nothing really bad had happened up until that point. We were very lucky. Um, and for to be on the six months, because we were that if in the operation that you had to have the if the cancer was all taken out, then he would have a good um, prognosis. Then we kind of we. We just clung to that. We assumed all the things that we could possibly do to the fact that there would be a good outcome. But that didn't happen because he had chemo, he had the operation, and then the result of the operation was that they didn't get it all out. And it became obvious that he only had probably months to live. And that really was um, that. Now, that was the wake up call. It was like, right, okay, we don't know how much time there is. We don't really know anything at all about um, 
I mean, we were transported into this other world, if you like. And people who have been in this situation will recognize that. There was language that we didn't understand. There was treatments that we didn't understand, all sorts of things. Anyway, in that time, what happened was that I received an email from a very old friend with a list of really practical questions that she insisted that I ask my husband before he died. Now, these were not easy questions. These are things like, what kind of coffin do you want? How would you like your body to be dressed? Um, is there anything that you have that isn't of value but is of sentimental value that you would like to leave to somebody in the family, say, or a friend? And I really didn't want to answer. I didn't want to ask him these questions. He didn't want to know either. But after the third email from our friend, um, I said, right, we need to do this. We just need to do it. You know, we'll get her off our, we'll get her off our back and it'll be done. So we sat up in bed one Saturday morning with the laptop and I asked him those questions and he gave me his answers and I wrote them down and unbelievably we had a good time doing it. It was quite incredible. You just wouldn't imagine that, would you? I mean, here I am with my husband. We know he's got a very short period of time left. He was still relatively okay at that point and we're talking about his death. I mean, how did we do it? I look back and I wonder, but actually the experience at the end of that morning was incredibly loving, incredibly connected and even joyous to some extent. It was like we, we'd been working on a project together and we'd been really good at working on projects together, like renovating houses, that sort of thing. And this had the same feel to it. So when I tell that story, I think that people can recognize that because I was just like that. You know, I was afraid. I didn't want to talk about it. Like nobody does really, but it's a little bit different now in my world. So <laughs> that's how I got into it though. Wow. That's phenomenal. And I know you call in one of your chapters, you call it the elephant in the room. Yes. And it's that, it's that big thing that everyone knows about. We're all going to die someday, especially in the yeah. context of of having a disease such as cancer, or I actually dealt with a, a cancer prognosis myself. Luckily, they caught it early enough last year and, and were able to get rid of it. So I'm very sensitive to being yeah. a survivor myself. Understanding your, your husband's dilemma and what you had to go through with him, it, it's gut-wrenching, yeah. but it's also extremely empowering too because you took yeah. a negative situation and created something that endures well beyond your years. Now yeah. you have stuff that people can go to through our internet, you, you know, you, your book is an ebook, or if yeah. that's what you want to call it, and you also have it in, in publication. It's called Before yeah. I Go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End-of-Life Plan, I recall, if I'm yeah. up to yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. My apologies. That's right. And what I want to do is highlight the main points of the book, but then also mm -hmm. tie into, because you're not just an author. You have a lot that you've yeah. done since your husband's passing. Yeah, and, that's right. You know. A lot of times when people look at situations, they try to approach it and say, well, how did you deal? Mm. The reality is you didn't just deal, you overcame. And now yeah. you're there to motivate others. And yeah. I think that that's probably the most important message, aside from any other messages that you cherish and hold regarding this area, that I think is pivotal for us to understand or even to just grasp with and get a, get a good point of view on a paradigm shift is what I'm I always tell people and it sounds like you had a pretty strong significant one well, as you, know, you approached your husband with this topic 
Yeah, and I think after he died, I had been writing a blog. I'd been working as a small um, business coach um, to in the holistic market. Um, I was suddenly left with um, all the debt that we had, but only one income to provide for it. There were all sorts of things that were fairly challenging. And I always knew that I would write about this major thing that had happened. I also knew that I had to wait for the right time. And I trusted that I would wake up that it was the right time. And that is exactly what happened. It took two and a half years before I felt like that. But that's when I wrote the first book, Gifted by Grief, a true story of cancer, loss and rebirth. And that was the memoir. Now, with that book, I was at a, a marketing conference, funnily enough, in America, while I was writing it. And I had an epiphany, which was I saw somebody on the stage and I suddenly realized I need to be up there, but not talking about my coaching business. I need to be up there talking about dying and death and grief. So from that moment, I put out that book in a much bigger format. It became an Amazon bestseller. And what I didn't know, I, that book is full of my um, spiritual awakening, let's say, and the things that I realized from that point of view as a result of my husband's death. But the, the chapter that people responded to was this one about the questions. So I knew that I had to do something about that then after about six or 10 people told me in the space of a week that this chapter had really affected them and they wanted to answer those questions as well. I was like, right, okay, I better get on and do something about it. And because I'd been, I'd had many years of experience of running workshops and working with people individually, I put together a little workshop and it sold out just locally here, you know, and basically that was the foundation for what has become the not-for-profit before I go solutions. And that original course, which was just 12 people in a small room in our little town, <laughs> has become now an online course. And um, I never planned this. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's like, it, it was a bit like the universe dictated to me what needed to happen. And all I had to do was follow that. And it still feels like that, to be honest. <laughs> I noticed at the front of your book, you have a chapter that's how to use this guide. Could you tell our audience yeah. a little about the practicality of that and why that's where it is at the beginning? Well, the it's divided into two sections. And the first section is um, sort of general topics that you need to think about to give you some um, background information. So that in the second section, which is full of those questions and more that I asked my husband, so that you can easily, more easily answer them. So, for example, in the first section, we're talking, we, we talk about the importance of talking about death and how to do it. How do you actually have a conversation with somebody about this? What on earth do you say? I have a chapter about grief and bereavement and the impact. It's very easy to underestimate the effect that grief has on people. So when I die, for example, there will be people left behind who are grieving and who are sad. Now, when you're in that state, you're not thinking straight often. You, you might think you are, but you often aren't. It's hard to make decisions. It's um, distressing not knowing what the person who's died wanted or or the kind of celebration they wanted or um, maybe they know some information about, uh, for example, with my husband, we didn't cover everything, so I didn't know about this. So there was a legal situation that we hadn't discussed and several months down the road, when I had to make decisions about that, I was left on my own to do it. You know, that felt very hard. And it could have been taken care of in advance. 
I know that now, but I didn't then. <laughs> so the other uh, chapter in that first section, I think, is probably in, of interest to your listeners is I called it What is a Body? And that's because it's a lot easier to take care of your own end of life preparations, let's say, when you have a belief that, that you are more than just a body. And I understand that not everybody has that belief, but in that chapter, I introduce the ideas about why that possibly might be true, who knows if it's true or not, but if you believe it or trust that, then it's a lot easier to do this practical stuff. That's phenomenal. I, I like the way that you bring up the idea of, and it's a larger issue than what we're talking about here, what happens to us when we die? Do we end to be or cease to exist or do we carry on? And as a yeah. medium, I would say I'm, of course, of one opinion that we carry on because I pick up a lot of stuff from deceased loved ones as I do as my second hat. Um, that's an interesting point, though. You go into an individual, your loved ones, for example, personal beliefs and how they may see their process being carried out beyond their passing and yeah. what they want done. And that's, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to get around because even as you're looking at it yourself, it, there's emotion attached to all that. It's not like you can just yeah. discuss it without feeling those emotions build up in anticipation. Have you figured out a way when you coach people about this to be able to ask these questions and do so in a way that they limit their emotional involvement where it doesn't get in the way of their decisions or their process of yeah. asking these questions? That's a really good question. And I imagined that there would be quite a lot of emotion for people around this. I haven't discovered that. I've discovered that so far, anyway, with the people that I've worked with, that it's possible to deal with this kind of stuff and keep the emotion to one side. It's not that it's not there. And for some people, it isn't, of course. But because it's so practical and people do understand that there is going to be the remnants, if you like, of a life left behind, you know, no matter at some level, I think we do all accept whether or not we're conscious of it is another matter. But we do accept that we are going to die. You know, dying is normal and natural. Even if the essence of you carries on, there is what is left behind is a body and all the accoutrements that went with that body that has to be taken care of by someone. So I think people do understand that at a very practical level, and it's possible to deal with that. Now, having said that, from the emotional point of view, I'm, I've been in this profession of working in the counselling field for many, many years now. I know how important it is just to feel feelings. So, and, and I learnt that even more with after my husband died because, uh, you know, it was awful. I felt there was the pain was terrible. I was com completely blindsided by the intensity. And even though I knew that it was normal, even though I understood about that it was the process and that I probably would eventually one day feel better, all of those things didn't really make any difference. But I did know one thing, and that was that I had to allow the feelings to be there and not to try to push them away or anything. And I came up with this analogy, which is that when um, when a feeling comes that we don't like knocking at the door, normally what we do is we try to shut the door, we lock the bolts and, you know, we don't want it to come in. 
which doesn't work because it lurks around the outside of the house, so to speak, and it will get in one way or another. And ultimately, actually, it gets in in the form of disease, which is not great. But so what I realized I was doing without having made a conscious decision to do this was I was allowing the grief in whatever form that was, whether it was tears or anger or fear, whatever, to just be there. And to use the analogy, I opened the front door, but I opened the back door as well of the house so that the fear could come in. It could be there for a little bit and then it could go off. And that's exactly what happened. So that's how I work with people. I don't mind if people are in tears or angry or terrified when I'm working with them. It doesn't very often happen, but it's fine by me. And I guess because when I, when I give that permission, then it's easier for people to be with that as well. I want you to describe a little bit about the Before I Go Workbook, Practical Questions to Ask and Answer Before You Die, which is available on mm -hmm. your website www.beforeigosolutions.com. I was going to see if you could tell, I think it's like 140 questions are in it. And if you could tell us a little about it and how yeah. people would use it uh, to understand planning beyond death with your loved one. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Because the workbook is just is a practical PDF download. All it has is the questions and spaces for you to put your answers in. So you can use it in conjunction with the Before I Go guide, the book. But you don't have to. The guide itself, the published book, you can just use that and write down, you know, your answers to questions in an ordinary piece of paper or a notebook or something. But if you're somebody who wants to be very organized and have everything in one place, then the workbook is the thing to get. And if you've completed all the questions in the workbook, then you know for sure that you have got a good end of life plan. There's no doubt about it. You know, in terms of your marketing, and I'm not giving any suggestions, but one of the things I'm thinking in my head, you're telling me and describing, we're looking at this topic. Just like people who have an infant have a Lamaze coach or someone that helps them with their breathing, and that's an mm -hmm. important part of the life. And I think that that's such a needed thing. How, when you got involved in this and you worked on this project and you started doing your, your, your nonprofit work and whatnot, my question is this. Did you, did you feel like you were kind of a trailblazer? in a field where there's not a lot of topic material out there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, I would say that's a good way of putting it. And actually, I've always been a bit of a pioneer in my life. So in a way, it wasn't unusual for me to find myself in this position again. Um, but I would say that in the last probably three to four years in particular, there's been much, much more written about or spoken about dying, death, grief in all the different areas. It's really as the baby boom generation gets a bit older and gets to confront death, usually in the guise of their parents coming to their own end of life, but sometimes in other ways, it's like people are going, okay, right, we really do need to talk about this. And there are some things that we need to take care of. So, Yes, there's no doubt that I would say that I'm one of the few people who are doing this kind of thing at the moment. Well, and the other thing I want to ask you is looking at this, and I know we've when you deal with the, the loss of a parent, grandparent, that kind of thing, how do you approach the people you work with to help them? I know you have to acknowledge that grief and understand it. How do you teach them or talk to them about coping with the grief and mm -hmm. being able to cope with it? And lessening the taboo of it with others in their life. Because I know people will see someone. A lot yeah. of times people don't even know how to approach someone who's going through this type of experience. I so know. What's, what type of uh, 
guidelines you give the people you work with or what would you say to our audience about that you know dealing with their well, grief and overcoming yeah. this I think the most important thing is to acknowledge it. And I understand that that's difficult because you don't want to make the person feel better, feel worse. But the fact is, you probably can't do that because you can't fix their problem. You just can't. So if you accept that there is no right thing to say, then that allows you to say at least something. Because I know when I was on the receiving end of people who just didn't say anything, but I knew that they knew that my husband had died. That was just so awful, you know? In fact, I would be compelled in those times to introduce the subject. <laughs> well, that's me, you see, because I like to talk about the elephant in the room, but, I, but not everybody's like that. So uh, the main, main piece of advice I give to people is simply to pluck up your courage and to say something, it doesn't have to be anything very much. Sometimes it can just be a holding of a hand and or a hug or saying, I'm so sorry to hear about the news. If you don't want to use the D word, you know, death, that's OK. But to say something because not doing it because you're afraid of upsetting the person is probably going to upset them more. Well, I can imagine, too, someone's probably being asked the same question over and over again. What, what can I do to help you? What, how do you yeah. feel? How are you working through this? I'm sure it's probably one of the best things to say to somebody. If you need me for anything, it doesn't matter. Just let me know. Is that something yeah. that you found? Yes. And what I would say is better than to say if you, I mean, it's wonderful to say that. Let's not push that to one side. However, even better, because remember, the person who's grieving isn't probably able to think very well not in the way that they used to anyway so even better is to think about some practical thing that you could do and offer to do it so for example for me it was like um somebody came around and knocked on the door and said i'd love to cut your lawn for you that was great you know i, was, <laughs> I couldn't care about the length of the grass you know sure <laughs> somebody else emailed and said that every day they went to the post office it's a bit different here in the uk for you than the US but we have to go to the post office to take our mail and he offered to take anything that I needed any day I just needed to let him know I mean that was wonderful other people you know before my husband died we had to I had to get him to the hospital three times a week which was two hours drive away and other friends would say I could take him I could take him once a fortnight. so practical things are really useful that's great what do you consider the main aspects of a good end-of-life plan that you would suggest to our audience? Okay, well, the very first one, if you're not going to do anything else, is the one that probably people know about and might be considered rather boring, which is the will. <laughs> it isn't, I mean, you know, most people, when they think about the will or the legal stuff, their heart sinks and, you know, they think about how much it costs at the lawyers and all the rest of it. But the fact is, that is the still the most important thing to get taken care of because, the effect of not having one is so expensive in both in terms of both time and money that it's much, much better to take care of it, particularly if you have children who are underage. That's very important because then in your will, you will be appointing guardians for them um, should you and your partner not be there. So that is really important. You know, I'm biased because I think that all the things are important, but there's two other things that I think really do help. One is the advanced healthcare decision, I think people, it's usually called that, generally speaking in the US, it's, some people might know that as the living will, it's the document where you state 
what kind of treatment you don't want at the end of your life. Now, that's pretty important because that will go some way. It's not guaranteed, but it will go some way to ensuring that towards the end of your life, you will be treated in the way that you want to be, which might include not having any treatment at all. But if you don't have that in place, then you are almost definitely going to be treated by the medics because that's how we that's how they're trained. And then the other bit is the funeral, but the details of the funeral, you know, there are, I worked out there are 25 questions and there's possibly a bit more, but there's 25 questions just to ask about the funeral and get those answered. It's not as simple as just a burial or a cremation. There's much more that you can do around that subject to actually really help the people who are left behind. I love that. I, I think the idea is having the the ability to see beyond and talking to your loved one saying, how would you like us to treat your passing? You may not yeah. be there in physical form, but what would you want us to do and why? Exactly. What, are there any specific things that you want us to do or say or to how to remember you or music? Yeah. What kind of tone do you want us to have? Do you want us to celebrate you? Do you want a more sober tone? It just depends. I think that those are very critical things. Yeah, I was just going to say, in, in the way that I work with this, I'd say that there are eight components of a good end-of-life plan, and I've just named three of them. Um, uh, uh, we talked about another one, which is the talking about it, the sharing. There's no point in having your plan in your head. You need to talk about it with people. <laughs> but there's a few other things as well. But, yeah, those are arguably the most important. What obstacles yeah. do you encounter planning the end of life plan for your husband and what obstacles do you think a typical person might encounter trying to put something like this into effect yeah well uh, first of all you get got to get over the fact that you don't want to do it at all <laughs> but, uh, and of course with things that we don't really want to do we keep pushing them off and we say there's we don't have time and we can't make a decision and actually but actually if you drill down a bit people are quite often afraid of making a commitment about a decision because they think it's irreversible. None of this is irreversible. Yes, if it's something legal and you needed to get it changed, that might cost a little bit of money. But even with a will, you can attach um, a form called here in the UK, um, I think they call it my last wishes form, which doesn't need to be witnessed, it can be changed. And you don't need the lawyer to approve that. So it doesn't have to cost anything. And the other stuff, you know, if, if I'm making my end of life plan now in my early 60s, I'm definitely going to have changed, hopefully, by the time that I'm 80 or whatever. I will be making changes to all those things. It's not it's an ongoing document, if you like. It's an ongoing. So it's something to be reviewed once you've completed it. It's something to be reviewed regularly. Another real obstacle one that many people talk about is, yes, I don't know what I want. Or, uh, particularly around the funeral, people say, well, I won't be there, so I don't care. But the fact is, I discovered this for myself just recently because in the autumn just gone, my mum and dad both died. Um, but Actually, they died in the same week, which is, I have now discovered, that's not unusual, apparently. They were together for 67 years. It wasn't unexpected for my dad to die, but it wasn't it wasn't expected for my mom to die quite so soon. Anyway, my condolences. Um, thank you, thank you. They had done their end of life plans, of course, because they were great champions of my work. And I discovered how wonderful. I discovered firsthand how wonderful a 
properly thought out plan was because all I had to do was carry out their instructions. I knew where everything was. All the um, content in the plan was in one place. I was directed to different places by what they had written. But here's the thing that I hadn't expected. It was a huge comfort to me to know that I was carrying out what they had known when they were alive that I would carry out. It's a bit clumsy to put it that way. You know what I like about that, though? That's a great point. Because think of it this way. When you're grieving somebody, one of the things people come to me all the time is, what is my loved one thinking I should do with this situation? Or how are they um, – do they accept what decisions I've made? Or whatever it is. We constantly want to look to our loved one for that reassurance. Yeah. And I think if you have a plan that you can incorporate that you know that they approve, yeah. you're doing that in your actions. And that may actually help you through the entire grieving process altogether. Exactly. Exactly. And um, because it's very distressing to try to make some decisions or to be missing information and that you can't ask for it. You know, it's like you're not ever going to get the answer because the person isn't there anymore. You know, that's really it can be really distressing. So, yeah, I'm completely biased. I just think this is a really good idea and everybody should do it. <laughs> There's no reason not to. You you have a plan when you buy a car. You should have a plan when you go and and your you know when you when you transition. I should say because I don't consider it yeah. death for myself. But there should be a plan in place. Absolutely, and my mission really is to have end of life plans become as commonplace as birth plans. You know, so that we're not necessarily talking about it as a special subject or the elephant in the room. Now, this may or may not happen in my lifetime. I don't mind about that. You know, I said I'm a pioneer, so I'm starting something off and uh, along with a, a few other people in the world. And hopefully that's what's going to happen. <laughs> what did you find in reference to our modern age? People have their Facebook or their social media accounts or they have their online presence. What type of suggestions would you give somebody who's working on creating their end-of-life plan with their loved one about those things? Yeah, well, the first thing that you need to know is that if you don't make a decision about it while you're alive, you are going to still be alive in the digital world after you've died in your bodily form, if you like. <laughs> and now that can be either a good thing or a bad thing for all relatives or not. It just depends. If you know what you want and you've discussed it with people, then it will be written down and then those instructions can be taken care of. But otherwise, uh, the sort of thing that you have to think about, and there's no right answer here. It's just down to the individual. But for example, my husband didn't really have much of a Facebook presence and I couldn't bear to see him on Facebook. So I got somebody else to investigate and to take that down. That was not an easy thing to do, but I didn't know that then. But if I'd tried to do it, oh, no, couldn't have borne that. But we had another family tragedy about three months after my husband died because my step-granddaughter of 16 years old also died of cancer. And now she was 16. In those days, 16-year-olds 16, 16 were on Facebook all the time. I know they're not now, but then they were. And um, what I saw in her case was that her page was kept up, her profile was kept up, and her friends kept posting on it for a year, at least for a year. And they, as if she was still alive, um, or they would post a lovely photograph or a memory or just when they were thinking about her. And it obviously served a really good purpose for those people. So it's, it's definitely something to think about. But if you have a strong opinion about this, and even if you don't, you need to do something about it. <laughs> Take the control back. 
So it's not sitting there with third parties, for sure. I want to ask you, did Philip have an understanding of what you were doing in light of your particular situation with him and how you've made this? I feel like you've made this a life purpose on such a level that it's changed and transformed what you're about. Did he know about that at the time he was passing on, that you were going to make this a mission and a successful mission at that? Thank you. Um, no, I don't think he knew that, but I think that he was a man, he was also a psychotherapist and he was a man who was only wanted to make a contribution to the world and help make a difference. And so I love the fact that he is still actually making a difference through this work. I think that he would find the irony of that very funny. And so in a sort of way, he's still here doing that with me, you know, and I get to talk about him all the time. Now, my life has moved on, obviously. I've become a completely different person. In fact, I met another man and, and um, you know, we, we will get married at some point. It's wonderful. He, his wife also died. And we feel like we've got Philip and Linda in uh, in our relationship with us. And it's wonderful, you know. So I haven't been in touch with him let's say from the other side but i think that he would really approve of this <laughs> i definitely think he would he would be looking down beaming with a, a deep smile for you on everything that you're doing just the fact that you're helping people in such a way by yeah. offering this information from your personal experiences yeah and having the courage to share that and transform is is, is pivotal i'd like yeah. to get into your other aspects of your life right now because i know you're pretty busy i know mm -hmm. you give you speak frequently, and I saw that you are online frequent, pr pretty proactive with sharing the message. I wanted to talk a little about that and see if sure. you uh, can discuss your uh, website and things that our audience could do if they wanted to, to, to go to your website, the services you offer, and, and engagements yeah. and all that. Sure. There's a quiz on the website, a really short quiz, um, where you can find out how prepared you are and you get a taste of just 10 of the questions so that you can identify whether or not you've taken care of this or not. And then there's an opportunity then, after you've done the quiz, if you want to get onto the mailing list, you can, because I do send out regular um, blog posts and regular opportunities to people. So that's at beforeigosolutions.com. Um, at the moment, we have just finished a Facebook challenge, which was encouraging people to start their end of life plan. Um, and we have a another free masterclass coming up called Dying to Talk, uh, three steps to communicating about your end of life plan with ease. And um, And we also have, those are free things, but we also have a couple of paid opportunities. So one is for the people who, you know, you can do all this stuff out there. You, you, nobody needs the stuff from Before I Go Solutions. If you are prepared to go and search for everything that you need to find out and do all that background work yourself. And of course, most people don't know what they don't know. I've discovered a lot of it through my own experience and my research. So we offer the Before I Go method, which is the online course to help people get through all this, get the questions answered, complete their workbook, and then that's their end of life plan done. That's a much easier way of doing it, much easier. And of course, you get to uh, join in with other people doing the same thing, and we really learn from other people doing that. That was one of the things that came across in this challenge. Um, but I also run the Before I Go Training Academy, which is for people who are coaches or celebrants or 
counsellors or in in the health profession in one way or another, probably they're going to be self-employed and people who want to learn how to bring the before I go method to their own locality. So, and that's the way I want to spread the word basically. So we just started that last year. We have a new intake happening in March and um, yeah, there's information about it on the website. That's great. I also know you gave a TED talk not too long ago about this topic. Can you share a little about that experience? Because I think that would be interesting as well. That was scary. That was the biggest audience I've ever spoken to. There were about 350 people. Well, it was our local TEDx and I was invited to speak and it's called How to Do a Good Death. I told my story, basically, the story that I've told a little bit of tonight. I told the story of me and Philip and what had happened. It's probably, yeah, I'll go into a bit more depth than that. So, but it's, it, but that's on the website as well. So it was, uh, it's been wonderful doing that because, you know, when you do something like that, it gives you a lot of credibility. People, you know, it's a bit like writing a book. I think it's, I just did it, you know, but, but other people think I'm amazing for having done it. <laughs> um, and from my point of view, I'm just sharing my passion in the way that I need to, you know, that I'm compelled to from the inside. And so I'm just answering the urges and I couldn't have, I knew it would be difficult for me, the TEDx talk. I have trained in public speaking, but I knew it would be a challenge. But I couldn't say no, you know, because otherwise I would have been going against my own impulse. And that is not healthy. That definitely doesn't work. <laughs> the topic of your TED Talk, did anyone ever look at it the different way before they, uh, have you ever had anyone say anything to you like how to plan a good death? Like, uh, was there any any type of, uh, I guess, comments made to you about it? Like if they misinterpreted the title, not knowing what it was or anything like that? No, I've never had that yet. <laughs> I've never had that. Isn't that interesting? So, well, maybe I'll get it now. <laughs> maybe someone from our audience after hearing this broadcast yeah. will think of it. I just, I, I think it's great. Let me ask you this. So many times our society looks at bucket lists. Mm-hmm. We all have them, whatever that yep. is. When you're taking that topic of a bucket list and you're looking into planning mm-hmm. end of life decisions, is there any type of advice you give anyone who has their own bucket list about their own end of life planning with their loved one or how to incorporate that into a plan, if that's even something that's been, yeah. you know, something. Yeah, it, it is important. And I think, you know, um, one of the things that I very quickly learned after my husband died was that it was very important that I was enjoying myself no matter what I was doing. And that led to quite a few radical decisions happening. And the reason, though, for that was because I got it. You know, I could die any time as well. And the thought of me dying when I'm not enjoying myself was not good. So... From the point of view of a bucket list, it's important to bear that in mind. You know, I would say that for most people doing their end of life plan is probably not going to get on the bucket list. But actually, if you want to give a gift, a really beautiful gift to your loved ones, and you don't mind the fact that you're not going to be around to receive their appreciation, then it is definitely something that should be on the list. You know, because people often put on their bucket list you know go to a country or learn a new language or whatever it is this is a process and it's a process which if you embark on it will bring you closer in your family I've heard that often time and time again people who have been scared nervous just like I was and yet they pluck up the courage and they have a conversation maybe they use some of the guidelines in the book or the workbook and and they're surprised that actually people do really want to talk about this very often. 
but nobody knows how to start it. <laughs> it's it's it is the elephant in the room, but I think if you start it and if you engage your loved one about it, you will likely be surprised that this mystery is not that mysterious and that you can come up with a a plain approach which will make you very satisfied when the moment happens that you know we're all likely going to deal with this. It's yeah. something that really does help alleviate yeah. a lot of those pressing issues that you may deal with because of the unexpected and, and the lack of preparation. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we don't know. We don't know. We can't control when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. So even though we might prepare and even though part of end of life planning is to at least in my way of doing it, is to dream into what is your ideal. We, of course, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. But that shouldn't be a reason for not doing it, for not saying what it is that we want, you know. So, for example, if somebody wants to die at home, it's important to have had that conversation and have that written down somewhere. Because the likelihood, even though people say they want to die at home, more people die in the hospital than they do at home. But if you've put out your plan that that's where you want to be happen if thing for you at that particular time trying to respect your wishes is pivotal and i think that's great i want to thank you we're actually running low on time this interview went very fast because i think <laughs> the topic is just so incredible and I, I just when i meet people who are making such an incredible difference i just have to thank you because thank i know you. so many so many of us get wrapped up in our daily life and we don't have that ability to really look beyond and transcend. And I feel like you've truly done that. I think that everything that you're doing right now is going to outlive all of us. And it's going to be something that is going to truly help inspire others for, for many years to come. And Thank you. I highly encourage my audience to check out your book. Before I go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End of Life Plan. I deeply appreciate you joining us as a guest this evening. And uh, look forward to any, if you ever want to come back on and talk about a related issue, I'd love to have you back on. Thank you. Lovely. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I know your husband and your parents are looking down at you with such pride and significant joy. Thank you. That's Thank lovely. You. <laughs> have a great day. Thank you. Are you looking for that perfect gift to express your appreciation for your loved one or bestie? Well, look no further. Royal Susie offers one-of-a-kind designs with genuine high-quality crystals, stones and the most precious of metals that are guaranteed to satisfy the urges of your inner king or queen. Each piece is handcrafted with love and is sure to inspire and captivate all. Indulge yourself by visiting Royal Susie's website at www.royalsusie.com for splendid items like agate bookends impressively crystal-studded bottle stoppers, and beautifully handcrafted nightlights that will charm every room in your home. Royal Susie's featured collections will truly delight your guests and always make them feel welcome. Any questions? Contact Royal Susie directly by email at royalsusiedesigns at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. 
Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric like 